Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Emil Park. I'm back in the Betsy Trotwood. We've come upstairs uh, in the pub, and I'm here once again with Alex Frith. Hi, Eamon. Good to be back in the Betsy Trotwood. It is. It's yeah. been three years. We were doing this. I think for four years we did it every year, and then of course, yeah, something happened. Something happened. <laughs> And we haven't been here for three years, but here we are back in pubs again, which is delightful. And I was listening to our last episode because we did Garth Ennis's True Faith. True Faith. I was listening to it on the train on the way down this morning, and and actually I saw Garth Ennis at the Gosh Shine on Saturday. Oh, nice. Uh, I didn't mention True Faith to him. Um, I'm sure he's embarrassed by it. <laughs> Still good. Still good. Well, it's interesting because he spoke to Conrad about Conrad from Space Minute 2000 reading the Strontium Dog stories that he'd written, and he said, uh, he apologised for those and said, I get a lot better. <laughs> yeah, um, he's always very honest about his own work. <laughs> but talking about your own work, mm. um, last time on the podcast, you mentioned that you were about halfway through a book with your parents about neuroscience, and it's out. It's been it's published. Out. Yes, yeah. Um, it would have been published a year ago, but for that thing that happened. Yes. <laughs> But no, it is out. It's called Two Heads, and it's published... I see you've brought a copy, which is the UK edition, ah, right. um, published by Bloomsbury, and I've got uh, the American edition, published by Scribner's, ah. just because the Americans are a bit more generous, so they sent me a box full of them, so I've got lots of these ones. So that's um, but a it's hardback the same edition. Yeah, that's a hardback, and right. it's got slightly different words in it, because it spells things funny over there. Right, Okay. Uh, so, Two Heads, where two neuroscientists explore how our brains work with other brains by yourself, your parents, Chris Frith, I should have asked before, your mum's name is Uta. Uta. Mm-hmm. Uta Frith, and art by Daniel Locke, Scribner in the US, hardback, Bloomsbury publishing this year here. Absolutely fascinating book. We've got lots of things I want to ask you about. Oh, good. That's, that's the point. Yeah, um, I want it to be interesting. <laughs> so... First of all, before I ask you the questions, just describe what the book is for any of our listeners who've not actually had a chance yet. Um, it is a very chunky 300-plus page graphic novel that I wish bookshops would stock in the popular science section next to Richard Dawkins, Steve Pinker, Brian Cox, that kind of thing. Right. But of course it ends up in the graphic novel section because it is, it's wall-to-wall comics. And what it's about is my parents are both neuroscientists who've spent probably the last 15 years of their life looking at what they call social cognition which means the science of how our brains work in relation to other humans right um so in order to explain that actually the first half of the book is kind of a more of a primer in how do brains work basically there's some biography of my parents because it's usually a little bit easier to swallow science if you've got some story going Mm. on with it but the bulk of the book is talking through experiments that my parents have done and their colleagues have done to answer questions like are two heads better than one is it more efficient to work with other people even if one of them is less competent than the other what is it that makes us form like tribal groups and kind of be mean to each other but also want to be nice to each other why do we cooperate why are we bad at it and maybe just maybe like how can we use this information to kind of make the world better yeah (laughs) that's the the bold pitch to sort of say this will change the world (laughs) Fantastic. So, I finished the book. I read the book. It's fantastic. Mm. You mentioned Stephen Pinker and Brian Cox, who've both got quotes on the front cover of the uh, the UK edition that I've got in front of me. Yes, yeah. My parents are quite connected in the world of science. And my mum, Uta Frith, if you're interested in science stuff, you might have seen her on telly, like, fronting a couple of 
Horizons about. She did one about psychopaths that she didn't particularly like doing, but it's a popular topic. Yeah. But she's also talked a lot about autism and dyslexia. And and both my parents have been on kind of lots of science radio stuff. So in that kind of world of like top level scientists, they get to mingle with the kind of celebrity scientists. So it's nice to be able to get them to endorse the book. I'm pretty sure they did actually read it and mean it when they said they think it's good. Let's go back to the beginning. Where, where did the idea, whose idea was it to do this book? So it, the, the specific book starts with my parents who won a joint prize from the main institute in Paris. So the École Normale Supérieure, I think, that kind of run all the big universities there. Um, so in 2014, they won this prize and they had to deliver a series of four lectures about social cognition, like kind of academic right. lectures. And the prize also gave them a lump sum of money with, to use to turn those lectures into a book. And at that point, they decided we don't want to turn it into a normal sort of academic science book, which they've done before. They wanted to do it as a comic. And that's when they sort of asked me, can you turn it into a comic, please? Oh, that's, right. That's what I did. Um, and of course, you've written yourself, as it says in the back of the book, you've written... Loads of books. Yeah, so my, my day job is I work for Osborne Publishing and I write non-fiction books for children that explain all sorts of stuff. But I right. have done quite a lot of science-y things, including I've done two books now about how brains work. Those were written for kind of eight-year-olds. Yeah. So There's a little bit different, but also not completely different. And, and all the books that I work on have lots of pictures in as well as words. So right. it's not comics, but it's also not that far from comics. And... What was the process like in terms of writing it? How did you start? Was it was it your parents sort of talking to you about this stuff, or were they writing stuff for you? Or um, so they they had the four lectures they delivered that I could watch. Right. And I'm pretty sure they're still available. I can find a link if people want to see them. So I listened to the lectures, had some conversations with them, decided very quickly that there was no way we could just launch into the content of their lectures. I had to do some. You need to know what a brain is made of, what neurons are, how neurotransmitters work, and just the basic stuff. So that then became like the challenge to sort of start writing that. And essentially from there, I wrote a kind of comic script that I sent to them to read over and kind of approve more or less. Mm. Would ask them lots of questions to say, can you explain this bit that I don't quite understand? Or can you actually talk me through the experiments that you did to uncover this kind of fact that you claim to be true? (laughs) And there is a section in the middle of the book that came quite late on where we just talk about the process of doing science. And neuroscience in particular is one of those areas where people like to say, either that everything that they've found out is just blindingly obvious because we all know how our minds work and we kind of experience human psychology day to day. Or they think, well, it's a waste of time trying to understand how people think because people just lie all the time or make things up. So there's a chapter sort of talking about how much of that, some of that is actually true, that a lot of things that people think that they've researched scientifically doesn't maybe hold up completely, but also how it's still worth doing and you can only really know something if you really kind of test the limits mm. of, of kind of your ideas. I found that middle section fascinating because mm. there was quite a bit about the reproducibility of experiments. Yes. And how there are certain experiments that make headlines but actually they find it very difficult to reproduce the results mm. when someone else does it. And I found that very interesting, the fact that you know they constantly try to reproduce the experiments of themselves mm. and others. And they're, it's a, they're a very collaborative 
you know, I mean, I think they mention that in the epilogue that the whole the whole process of neuroscience and these experiments is very collaborative for them. Yes, yeah, and I think that's true of all scientists. It's it, it, one of those things that as the years go on, we've kind of moved away from this idea that science is about great geniuses who discovered amazing things and then imparted their knowledge. And then it's like, actually, no, there's always a team who's doing the work. And that, uh, you know, that it may be that there are sometimes great geniuses that have particularly original ideas, but even then they still need other people to help them test it. Yeah. And I think it's just becoming more normal to be open about that. And, you know, the idea that scientific papers have this increasingly long film credit style list of names attached who did all the work. Yeah. Let's just talk about your parents mm. for a moment. So Uta Fritz, I'm going to read from the back of the book, Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Development at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, University College London. And then Chris Frith, Emeritus Professor of Neuropsychology at the Wellcome Centre for Human Neuroimaging at University College London. Honorary Research Fellow at the Institute of Philosophy. They're both fellows <laughs> of the Royal Society. Yeah. Your mom's a dame. Yeah. They, they are, in terms of their, there's quite nice in the in the book where they you have like their top Trumps cards. At a point. Yeah. They have quite impressive statistics and impact statistics. Yes. Don't they? Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, it, it's worth saying that um, I, anyone listening to this podcast who thinks, "Hang on a minute, who's this person who's just written a comic that's been published by a book publisher is in in Waterstones? Where's his like?" small press world stuff mm. and it's not that this is me that has kind of has some magic skill it's that my parents decided they wanted to do this book we started doing it people they were talking about it and people found out like okay those two people are serious scientists we think that there's a lot of people who want to know what they have to say mm. so this book exists because they are successful in their field essentially and <laughs> As well as being, you know, the science of their field and all this fan- fascinating stuff about social cognition, you, we also get a bit of a family history as well because yeah. your parents are very much sort of characters in this book, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, that's something that they probably didn't want to do as much as we have right. done. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I read quite a lot of nonfiction comics because I'm interested in nonfiction and I love comics. And it is noticeable how the ones that work best or the ones that kind of people have heard of are nearly always biography based so you've got things like mouse and persepolis and fun home that like the holy trinity of like Mm. the most amazing literary comics ever made and they're all kind of telling life stories of people and a particular precursor to this book is one called logi comics oh yeah that you may well have heard of which is a more or less a biography of bertrand russell's mathematician philosopher but it also has the guy Apostolos Doxiades who wrote it and his artists as characters in it telling a bit of their story and then going into Bertrand Russell before getting to the, the logic and philosophy bit of it. And it just seemed that this is what works when doing non-fiction. So we kind of, let's talk a bit about my parents and their life. And I think there is something about the study of psychology which is it seems odd to me that anyone could not be interested in human behaviour. Mm. But at the same time, there's obviously some people who are interested enough to actually kind of study it and make it a job, which is a bit of a different thing. And I got to ask questions of my parents that I hadn't really thought to ask as a child, like, well, what did you actually study at university mm. and how did you do this? Because when you're young, you're just your parents are just these kind of things that exist and have jobs that you pretend to be interested in but you're not really (laughs) yeah Um, and it's quite nice to kind of find out a bit about that and there is a certain element to it's not a big part of this story but my so my father is is english and my mother is german and their parents or rather their fathers technically fought on opposite sides in world war ii which was something that 
we didn't particularly talk about much. We didn't not talk about. And it was always a kind of, a, you know, as a child in the late 70s, in the 80s in, in England, with a German mum with a thick German accent and a German name, you kind of, it comes up in the playgrounds. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it kind of is interesting to kind of provide a sort of a different perspective on something. So I, I'm very aware that my mum had to kind of encounter not just the classic kind of sexism prejudice of like, oh, women aren't supposed to be scientists. Although that was never quite as bad in psychology as I think in other sciences. Mm. But also the kind of, oh, you're German, that's weird in England. <laughs> so th- there's a little bit of that, that just having these little details makes you want to turn the pages more. <laughs> yes, and I, I mean, I think her, you know, the personality and her, her observations on being, in, a, in some ways, the other, mm. you know, and you mentioned the sort of social psychology experiments towards the end of the book about cooperation and how we treat people who are in our circle and outside our circle. Yeah. Um, and I love that all the way through the book, her personality about just reminding people, you know, mm. I've been the other. Yeah. You know, um, I'm a woman in science, mm. um, you know, when it was slightly more tricky to do that. And, you know, as you say, being a German in the UK when it was gay, mm. you know, the stuff about it. So that's fascinating. I mean, I, lo- I loved it. It starts in there. You know, their home in London in their studies, yes, which is wonderful, <laughs> including the pile of comics I noticed on a side table that you've given them to read, yes, yeah. Um, and it finishes with the epilogue on their sort of like their New Year's Day party, yeah, in the, in the same house where yes. they have their studies, yeah. Um, and then throughout the book, they are such, uh, you know, as you say, they probably wouldn't didn't quite like this so much, but they are so much characters in the book using themselves in a way as like, um examples of the stuff they're studying almost in literally taking their skulls off and looking at their brains yes, you yeah, know, yeah. which is fascinating there's again I, I, I sense a slight reluctance from your parents to do too much of the personal stuff and you know for us when we're kids thinking about our parents we actually we quite like them to tell us some of the stories that were mysteries to us was that you know discovering some of the family history as well was that interested in yeah definitely um, just uh, even the question about how did they actually meet so yes. there's a story we tell where cause my my mum had been studying in Germany and came to um, London on one of those kind of exchange type thing well, not an exchange but you know she got to do like a term abroad studying a particular module and then she was struggling with a computer that you know in the early 60s there were still new things and my dad was into computers so he noticed that she needed help and helped her basically right. and it's kind of you know, I, it hadn't occurred to me to ever ask them how they met, yeah. which is maybe makes me a strange child. There were certainly some email threads where I'd sort of say, it's about time that we tried to find a story that made you both look incompetent or, or mean or wicked or something. And they struggled to come up with examples. I think partly because no one finds it easy to actually agree when they have been any of those things. Yeah. But also because to some extent, I think they are, sort of, for want of a better word, good people <laughs> yeah. and they're also very into their work yeah so they you know they spend even now when they're technically retired they spend most of their days at home checking their emails and replying to things and reviewing papers that and just working essentially yes i i, I get that impression of the book that they're still very active mm. in their fields um i, t- I think i told you at a previous encounter with betsy mm. trotwood when i was reading the book about schizophrenia mm. and i suddenly i didn't realize this i was about halfway through the book i was thinking Oh, this is written by Alex's dad. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, uh, which was amazing to me, but yes. Yeah. Okay, well, let's just 
turn to something we're perhaps more familiar with, which is the artwork. Yes, yeah, it's the same. We haven't mentioned Dan once yet, and that's, yeah. that's wrong. <laughs> well, so Dan Locke does the artwork, beautiful coloured artwork, 300 plus pages. Yes, um, yeah. It's a lot. What stage was he sort of brought on? As early as we could manage. So I think at the point we brought him on, I'd written the sort of skeleton of what the book plan would be, and we had written up a sample three or four pages. Right. And we sent one page out to Dan and a handful of other kind of comics artists that we kind of found and approached and got them all to kind of pay them to do samples to Mm. see what we liked. And Dan essentially kind of won that contest by virtue of the fact that my parents liked the way that he drew them. Right. Because, you know, they look like themselves, but they're also so cartoonish. So I think they found it easier to not just see their actual selves in it. Yeah. Um, And since they're on, you know, every other panel in the book, it's quite important. Um, So that was how we did it. And then Dan has a background in animation, which means that he has learned the amazingly vital comics art skill of being fast right uh, so uh, okay. uh, once we decided that we you know we wanted to work with him I met up with him and we had a nice chat and he turns out to be almost exactly my age he's based in Brighton and he's very busy and kind of he's good at the sort of social mingling side of comics creation which right. I'm not so good at and I would send him chapters and he would sketch up thumbnails you know faster than I could write them and then once we had like a thumbnail of almost a whole book, that's the point when a kind of a literary agent kind of heard that my parents were doing this and wanted to get involved. So we, we had this package to show around. Right. And then he essentially redrew the book, I think, three more times and decided after he'd sort of done the second round of slightly more kind of worked up thumbnail sketches that he actually wanted to do it in full colour. Because originally we'd assumed it would be black and white with maybe like a you know a blue or yellow wash or something on it. Right. And he was like, no, I think more people will read it if I do it colour. And now, right. okay, so it's like, okay, we're committing to adding at least another year to this whole thing. <laughs> but he was up for it. And yeah, I can't kind of speak highly enough of his work ethic because he's also busy doing other stuff. Um, while we were in the early stages of Two Heads, he was actually also finishing off his kind of previous work, which is a graphic novel called Out of Nothing that you can find in the kind of, you know, the fancy comic shelves of your bookshops. Right. Which was a very interesting project that he did with a a visual artist called David Blandy and kind of worked with a genetics kind of expert called Adam Rutherford. And essentially it's trying, that book is a sort, it's almost, I almost say it's it's about as close to poetry as comics get. And it's kind of telling the story of life, particularly human life, from the beginning to where we are now. Mm. So it kind of traces the origins of the universe and life on Earth and kind of you know, early humans migrating around the globe. And it, there's, you know, there, there are words in it, but it's a lot more visually led, and it's really interesting. And if, So if you flick through two heads and you think, I like it, but there's too many words and too much information, right. have a go out of nothing, because it's, it's kind of science imagery comics. <laughs> and I noticed from his website and his blog, uh, that, yeah, or his bio rather, mm. that he's representing popular science is something he's, he's really interested in yeah 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 he's he's kind of you know he's he's a good networker so he's since sort of working with us he's kind of made other contacts and he's done different projects he's got a fascinating background that i think he's going to develop at some fashion where he spent some time visiting people in prisons and doing work i think with a psychologist about psychopathy right and that's okay you know I'm, it all informs this, I guess. Interest, basically, if you're interested in science, but you're not a scientist, this is meant to be the book for you. <laughs> yes, and it is beautiful. His artwork mm. is beautiful. I mean, he, he does have a, a cartoony style, which is particularly suited, or, or he's using a cartoony yes. style. Yes, yeah. 
every now and then he'll break out like a slightly more detailed style to draw like a, a full brain in all its kind of foldy textured glory. <laughs> yes, or do some, um, I'm looking at some where he's sort of copying pages from other books and so on. Yeah, yeah, we've got, there's a few cameos from like other comics and cartoon characters. So there, there was, um, there's an experiment that one of my parents' kind of colleagues did involving the Smurfs. Yes, so um, there's a Smurf yeah, yeah. crop. So there's a Smurf thing. And then there's also quite a key discovery that my mum was involved in about how our brains instinctively can imagine what other people's brains are doing was inspired by um, German kind of comics pioneer Wilhelm Busch. So he's like one of these like fans, 19th yeah. century people that... Um, he had a kind of story of two naughty boys called Max and Moritz. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the one. Page 84. Um, and they are... The, his comics are the ones that inspired the kind of first wave of like American New York newspaper cartoon. It's like the Cats and Yammer Kids right. were written by someone who would have grown up reading Max and Moritz. And it's not like he's, you know, people that like to trace the history of comics are forever pushing it back by the centuries and they're not wrong to do yeah, so. But, sure. yeah. but Wilhelm Busch is one of the kind of the, the sort of early names that gets thrown out that you know, my mum and some of her German colleagues were like, well, yeah, of course everyone's read him. It's like us reading Dr. Seuss or yeah. Enid Blyton. It's just there. <laughs> Does Dan work, because uh, you mentioned sketches, does he work digitally or in actual? Um, he does both. So his thumbnails were all done by hand and then scanned right. in. I think for the final round, I think he he re-sketched everything. I think he did do it probably by hand, then scan in the line work and then do a lot of digital colouring. So in fact, all this artwork exists as digital files that I have on my computer. And oh, I'm right. sure Dan has on his computer too. But whether he has painted some pages just for his own amusement, I don't know, but I wouldn't put it past him. And then, of course, he does these beautiful two-page chapter titles yes. throughout the book, which are fascinating as well, including, as you say, some very detailed drawings of uh, brains and so on. And then throughout it all, the sort of characters of your parents telling the story, um, telling their own story, perhaps slightly reluctantly, but then telling the science story, which is absolutely I mean, fascinating. That's the real thing. Like, one of the things that I don't know that... I'm sure some, but many other graphic novels have done, is just actually talk readers through the step-by-step. Here's the theory that we had. Here's the test or the experiment that we came up with to test it. Here's what happened when people did the experiment, and here are our results, which is essentially what papers do in scientific journals, but almost never in comics form. And we kind of... It's a bit of an experiment, this book, to see, can we use comics to explain proper footnotes-based science in a way that is easy to understand and kind of fun to read? And that's one of the questions I was going to ask you, because obviously the subject of neuroscience is complicated. So complicated, I think that the book actually opens by saying nobody really understands how the brain works, yeah. but we are moving moving towards a better understanding. And later on in the book, I think you make the point yourself, which is, because it is difficult to understand, maybe comics is a... Not perhaps, you know, the, the pinnacle of the media. Of, of, of I'm happy saying comics are the pinnacle okay. of human <laughs> communication media. <laughs> As, well, maybe then the ideal way to explain this stuff. Hmm. Um, uh, is there something about a sort of combination of word and image you think is particularly suitable for this? Uh, yes, particularly because there's a challenge involved in coming up with an image that makes sense to explain the words or to go along with the words. Right. So, you know, from my parents' point of view, their kind of job in this book has just been, well, we did the science and we, you know, they they kind of keep abreast of developments in it and they want to make sure that the experiments they did were functional. Mm. 
so their job is to kind of have done the science and then to explain it and then sort of mine and Dan's job was to think well how can we get this across and by not just relying on a paragraph of text it forces us to be sure that we really understood the kind of the nuance of right. what they're saying um, and then also to be able to come up with some pictures that are just kind of playful to kind of help the reader kind of go from one page to the next because they're, they're enjoying it mm. so I, I think that is one thing that kind of comics have over just pure prose is that you have to kind of put the effort into think well if you know, we're visualising this experiment so there's kind of a ball hiding in this cup but you can see another ball somewhere else and then there's like a person who's manipulating what's going on and you have to kind of see well where is the you know the person being experimented and where are they looking what are they thinking about and then what does it all mean yeah absolutely fascinating mm. I mean it is as we say it's over 300 pages it's a big book we can't obviously explain neuroscience in this short podcast that is because <laughs> of the book itself <laughs> which we want people to go and buy I'm going to ask you about sort of personal discoveries uh, I should mention of course that you are a character in the book you appear I appear time. a handful of times yes yeah, and and you and your brother appear as children in books. Yes, yeah, I've got an older brother, and we were used, I would say, with consent, once we were old enough to know what that meant, yes. to do, because my, my mum in particular did quite a lot of work on child development, so having her own children was convenient. But basically yeah. we were just like on-hand test subjects to, to sort of do a bunch of stuff. So there's, there's one story of us doing this experiment yes. that he could do because he was old enough, and I couldn't do because I wasn't old enough. It was annoying. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> And you became annoyed about it, yes, because yes, he could do it and you yeah. couldn't, yes. So that's fascinating. I mean, I'm going to... Two things. One was, what was, the, what was, if we were to sort of like give one snippet of science that you found particularly fascinating from, your, from writing this with your parents, and also one family story as well, what would, what would be the science notes that you particularly stood out to you? Okay, so... You and I are sitting around a table mm. in, a, in a pub, and a thing that I hadn't thought about before until I kind of read that my parents had done some work on it, was that we're used to the idea that our brains have a sense around us of what things are in our reach. Right. So I can reach over to my kind of cup of lemonade that's in front of me, and that's fine. And then there's an interesting thing happens, that when a companion sits at a table with you, your brain is automatically including that other person's field of reach as being part of your field of reach. The technical term is zone of affordance for reasons I don't understand. So I can't reach your cup of Coke, but I know that you can reach it. So my brain registers it as being something that I can access because I can ask you to pass it to me. Mm. And that's something that I just never thought about. It's kind of a very instinctive human thing that we're, you know, we're mostly happier when we're with other people. And perhaps one reason why is that whether we mean it or not, our brains kind of sync up even in this kind of purely sort of physical sense of things that you can reach are now within my reach. Right. So that's the kind of a, a scientific concept that I'd never even thought about before. That's like, that's amazing. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier on in the discussion, it sort of leads into or links into a lot of the work about social cooperation in the book mm. and about how you know, we work better as groups and, and, and how a group can work mm. better and you know, what characteristics a group needs in order to succeed which is fascinating. There was a really fun experiment about that that I think my parents didn't do, but some kind of either colleagues or people they didn't even know that well, but kind of read about where they got, they went to, I think it was in an American university and they got groups of people to sit around together and solve like a murder mystery pack. So there's kind of, you know, games that you can buy. And the way they did it, they set it up so that some groups were 
all people who were already friends, or if not friends, they were kind of part of the same. I think they did it through fraternity, so the yes. American University system. So they got people together who kind of had this shared bond. And then they put some people in groups together where they had most of them from a shared bond, but then introduced someone from a different fraternity or it was in some way an outsider. Yeah. And what they discovered was the people that were all like in the same group had much more fun doing the mystery thing together, but got the answer wrong more often. Whereas in the groups where they had a mix or even just having one outsider in the mix, it was all a bit less fun for them doing it, but they much more often got to the right answer. Yeah. And the, the kind of, this is like the common sense reading of that, which hasn't been experimented on yet, so it may not be true. It's just that when you're not part of a kind of a group, it's easier for you as an outsider to say, I think your reasoning might be wrong here. Try again. And then the rest of the group, kind of partly because of politeness about kind of having someone else in or kind of being a bit more guarded, maybe thinking, oh, I do need to force myself to think again. And then, you know, just more points of view, asking each other different questions, maybe what led to that. Yeah, and that's kind of feels like a really pure, straightforward. Any given company, we're obsessed with like be a team player. Teamwork is the best thing, and it people seem happy that that's the sort of the mode of life at the moment. But this is kind of a new science-backed message that says, well, yes, but make sure your teams have room for non-team members to join in too, because it will get you better results. And I love how <laughs> in the book you illustrated that by having the sort of the outsider who looked and sounded like the group, sort of mm. being Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, which would make for a happy group, but not necessarily the correct solution. Mm. And then Hercule Poirot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's a really annoying guy, an annoying, <laughs> you know, chap with a yeah. Belgium accent, and he's like yeah. funny looking as he's mm. describing the books, but actually might be better for the group in terms of them testing their own theories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. fascinating. I love the bit, or I was fascinated by the bit about feedback loops in the brain and how we know. Mm. If the brain is working correctly, we sort of like how we know that it's our brain that's working by various feedback loops that say, yeah. that's me thinking about something, or that's me intending to do something. And how one possible explanation of schizophrenia is that certain people perhaps lack feedback loops. Or yeah, or the feedback loop gets cut in some way or rerouted yes. somehow so that a thought that you yourself have had doesn't go through the system that tells you it's your own thought. Exactly. And then immediately your brain has to deal with, there's a thought in my head that wasn't mine. Yes. And that's, that's outrageous. Yes. So it's no wonder that some people with schizophrenia end up kind of concocting what sound like outlandish stories. But with that information, it makes sense. Well, yeah. yes, it must be an outside force projecting a thought into me. Yeah, I, I find that absolutely fascinating, that, you know, that section in the book. Uh, I mean, it's all, it's all wonderful and fascinating. What about the family histories? Were there any sort of like, you know, was it the meeting story or anything like that? I mean, the one that I hadn't heard before that I thought was quite hilarious is that my mum's two grandmothers were, I think one was a sort of German Catholic and one was German Protestant. And this kind of presumably caused some conflict for her parents marrying but that wasn't about that it was more that what my mum's lasting memory of that is that one of them was obsessed that salad dressing should be vinegar based and the other one was obsessed that it should be lemon juice based <laughs> and it's just like these little, little things that as small children you kind of pick up on like, this is the family argument <laughs> it, it is one of those cultural things like you know do you put the milk in before the tea or after yes, the tea yeah. or, or Cornwall and Devon and I can never remember which it's you know cream and oh yeah yeah <laughs> Um, Alex, it's absolutely fantastic. It's a wonderful book. We should, obviously, we should remember not just the contribution of your parents, but Dan Lott. Yes. Wonderful artwork. Beautifully produced. 
if we mention the artwork and play the Grail Page game, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, did you did you pick a, a page? Uh, I I did pick a page. I mean, it's it's very hard picking a Grail Page based on me having asked an artist to draw something and yes. then them drawing it. And most yeah. of my time was then spent looking and thinking, is that what I actually meant you to draw? <laughs> but I did. Actually, funny enough, it, it links to the, the feedback loops a little bit that you were talking about. So right. um, there's a famous psychology experiment called the Libet experiment in which someone kind of was the first person to observe that our brains decide to do things slightly before the bit of our brain that registered we've made a decision make that registering. So basically it looks as if we're not controlling our decisions. Yeah. That's what we actually are. So we kind of visualise this a bit by... Because it's my dad who was kind of working on that area. So we had him being a puppet on a string being manipulated by a kind of a brain with hands. Right. Um, and I'm just kind of flicking through to find what page that's on. In fact, this is a rare graphic novel that has an index. So perhaps if I use the index, it will help me find it. I should also mention that not only has the graphic novel got an index, mm. it also has, and I think this is... Uh, possibly apart from Logi Comics, this is a first for us in that it's got several, several, several pages of references. Yes. Which refer yeah. to all the various. Yes, yeah, so every experiment mentioned is referenced is in the reference. Back. Yeah. So here we are, page 138, 139. It's a double page spread of this kind of ghost of the kind of consciousness emerging from a brain with strings manipulating what you're doing. And then it, it, we kind of end with this sort of playful idea that because of the result of this finding, it is in theory the case that. If I could hook you, Eamon, up to an EEG scanner or something similar that could kind of show your brainwaves happening, I could observe the speed of like light and thought through my eyes would tell me more quickly than you that you were about to kind of move your hands yes. to wave hello. Yeah. I mean, it's not very useful because it's literally fractions of a second of advance, but the idea that I can see into your head and see what you're going to do even a little bit before your own head tells you the same information... Yeah, so it's that's astonishing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a whole section, of course, about you know free will and everything. Yeah, that relates to that. But yeah, it's fascinating yeah. that our brains, or rather, you know, our brains act before we know they're about to. Yeah, it's fascinating. Have you have you got a Grail page? Um, I, mean, I, would, <laughs> I, I didn't pick out a Grail page myself, but I would take any of the sort of title double page spreads because I thought they were fascinating uh, and great stuff by Dan Locke. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I could in theory just send you a JPEG on that page that you can print and hang on your wall if you yeah. want to be surrounded by brains but well, it's I a little might, bit much I might ask you to do that so that I can post it on the social media when this episode yes, comes out yeah I will definitely do that and so people can see some of this artwork so it is this copy is eighteen ninety nine. I mean you, you can always buy it cheaper than that I don't, online cheaper <laughs> copies are available but yes yeah. but also you know go to your local bookshop and ask them to yes please, you. please please do, do that it's just fantastic Alex I mean what an achievement you've You've mentioned it a few times, <laughs> yes. And now here you have. I mean, it, it's you know, it, we don't. I don't know how long we thought it would take, but it sort of went from two years to four years to six years, right? As just it got a lot. You know, it was never meant to be three hundred pages, and then it ended up being that long. And then Dan decided to do full color, and then I had a baby at some point in the middle, like a third child, <laughs> slowed things down. But it's just um, remarkable, but, yeah, because you. you know, it's the wonderful guide to neuroscience. And your parents are wonderful characters who really come across in the book. And also that you've done this sort of family record, I suppose, you know, this documentation of some yeah. family history. There's a little bit of that. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. Not something I thought about that much while doing it, but you're right. So, yeah. yeah it's, it's nice to have that. Yeah, well, I mean, I always think this about, I mean, you know, our kids probably will think the same about us, is that, you know, 
write some of this stuff down or document mm. some of this stuff so that we, we can know about it. Yeah. And of course, it's got literally nothing to do with 2000 AD, which is the, the notional <laughs> logline for this podcast is to talk about that. <laughs> I was looking very hard at the pile of comics on the coffee table in your father's study, but you know. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a Judge Dredd cameo hidden in there. <laughs> right. So, guest projects time. Uh, what, are you working on another book? So I, I am trying to follow this up with a book that focuses on the, the, the elements about science itself. So right. I'm g- giving it the working title of Understanding Science. So I'm trying to put together a book where, a, a graphic novel again, to explain what the scientific method is and how science works. And the key feature will be that I won't be involving my parents, but I'm, I'm going to kind of work with a set of scientists in completely different fields and get them to sort of share a story of how they discovered a thing that we now know that we didn't right. know before and use comics artists to kind of basically tell that story. The idea being that I fear that there's this kind of cultural war at the moment that we don't like it when they say, oh, scientists say or experts mm. tell us this. And there's on one side, there's people who say, of course you should trust experts. And there's people saying, of course you shouldn't trust experts. You've got to kind of be your own person. And there's some merit on both sides, although I'm very much on the I trust the expert mm. side. But I think part of the problem is that it kind of makes sense if you just hear a headline that says scientists say this thing is true that you don't have any evidence for yourself. So I'm hoping that the point of this book is to say, well, when a scientist claims something, there's a whole sort of line of work going on in that. And any given, if you explain it to any given person, I had this idea, I did this test, this is what I found out. It's kind of impossible to, to sort of ignore that. And you might sort of very readily think there's a flaw in your reasoning there and I, and I know why it's wrong but that's part of the scientific method in itself mm. that's a good thing so it's kind of it's again it's quite a lofty goal to sort of try and make science more palatable than perhaps it is and I'm hoping to this is a bit where it's kind of experimental is that Dan has kind of signed on to, to kind of work on the kind of prologue and epilogue stuff but I want to make it more of an anthology so I pointedly want to get five different artists as well as five different scientists uh, just to kind of push this idea of well if comics are a good way to unpick science it's worth exploring that because comics can look and feel very different depending on who's right. doing them so they'll have an anthology feel which 2008 fans all love <laughs> fantastic I look forward to it I look forward to talking about it mm. Two Heads is fantastic I hope your parents are as pleased with it they really are good yeah. good uh, absolutely wonderful stuff and uh, yeah I suppose we should also mention, of course, here is a 2080 blog. We should, except to say that I haven't updated it for more than a year. Right. And I think at this point, I might, while I might get back to it, I've sort of lost the kind of the, the driving taste for it. So this was a, my blog where I would highlight the work of writers and artists and even editors and letterists who worked in 2080 just to kind of put something up on the internet to sort of celebrate the work that they've done because a lot of them being in the world of British comics just don't get mm. internet recognition that, that they clearly deserve. And then I've kind of moved away from doing that, so I'm still kind of always got a 2000 AD itch to scratch. So I've, in recent years, I've been reading over the kind of some of the bodies of work and just doing a classic online ranking of what's the best. So I did a kind of a, a whole series of all the Judge Dredd mega epics oh, right, that yeah. I kind of that went out on Christmas and caused some controversy when I... I don't like Tour of Duty as much as everyone else. And this, this seems to be irritating to people. And then I did one looking at all the end-of-year specials, which is kind of these big celebrations. And this year, I'm, I'm working my way through all of Slain. Oh, right, okay. work out. And that's, that's a fun one. I think that's very much one where people are like, yeah, Slain used to be great. 
built up to this amazing crescendo with the horn god and then was just not very good apart from a few bits here and there and mm. um, I think there's room to challenge that kind of received right. truth um, so and of course you know the idea of putting my opinion on the internet about Pat Mills is maybe going to get me in hot water so that's part of the fun <laughs> he doesn't like it when other people is this say what he intends um, right. Well, I've, so I've, I've been kind of linking to them as part of the 2008 forum kind of advent right. calendar, kind of December sort of special uh, treats thing. But I've, I've been hosting it on kind of my own blog. Right. But I'm I'm kind of wait to do it, sort of have a year's gap in between because it's quite a lot of reading and writing to do just for fun. <laughs> okay. Um, but I'm enjoying doing that, and yeah, I'll, I'll never get tired of trying to sing the praises of 2008. So there's the heroes of 2008.blogspot.com. Yes. Which rather poignantly, the last entry was mm. about Gary Lee. Yes. Which, of course, is rather yeah, yeah. sort of sad now in retrospect because he passed away this year. Uh, but there's another blog with this other stuff. There's a separate, there's a separate blog each for the, the, the Dread ranking and the right. best prog ever won. And then there'll be a slain one that hasn't kind of gone live yet. So I should send some links. Give me the link and I'll yeah, put yeah, that yeah. in the show notes for this episode as well as links um, to Two Heads mm. uh, and uh, the Heroes of 2008 blog spot. Great stuff. Well, thank you very much for having me, Eamon. No, thank you. Thank you for for finishing the book and to coming Mm. and talking about it. Thank you to Colin Taylor, Colin YNWA, for reminding me, uh, he's a previous book cover, but reminding me that I needed to talk to you about it. Oh, that's good for me. He's written a very nice review of it on Amazon. Has he? Yes, he has. Um, I think also genuine, not just because he's a nice guy. (laughs) And I look forward to, hopefully, uh, same time next year, we'll have another book. Yeah, yeah, we'll get something... A deep cut from 2000 AD. Okay, if there's anything left. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you, thank you to Alex. Uh, Thank you to everyone for listening to Make City Book Club. Thank you to Betsy Trotwood for putting us up today. Find the podcast, including links to all of Alex's work, at megacitybookclub.com. Email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. And follow us on all the socials to particularly see some of Dan Locke's artwork when this episode comes out. And that's it. Until next time when we're talking about another great book. Uh, From here at the Betsy Trotwood, it's goodbye from me. That's goodbye from me.